Hello, I'm June Reith, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time we're picking up part two of our discussion of Anarchist Cybernetics by Thomas Swan. If you didn't catch the first part, I'd recommend going back and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Let's get to chapter four, uh, Control Part One, Tactics, Strategy, and Grand Strategy. Um, I found this this was really really pretty pretty good, right? That, yeah, um, I like this chapter a lot. This was really yeah, cool. Yeah, this is one of the stronger ones. Um, so in, in anarchism, um, strategy has kind of historically been disavowed. Um, well, I mean, it's 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 often ambivalent, but like there have been anarchists that have really strongly. It argued that actually anarchism is concerned entirely with tactics and strategy is just completely outside of the um, the remit. This is not really characteristic of the whole history of anarchism. It's more of a like post-90s thing, like 90s into the early aughts, the sort of turn of the century. Um, that that uh, in that period of time, yeah, that this was a re- like a real going concern in theory that we focus on tactics, we don't focus on strategy, but historically, you know, obviously not, right? Like anarchists had strategy in the past. They just Yeah, I guess it's it's another one of these artifacts of like compressing timelines in the way it's presented here that like a lot of different stuff gets smashed together. Um like for instance with like the the uh Narodniks, right? Like uh uh going to the people was a strategy. Yeah, that's a strategy. Right. Like right. it's 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 clearly a strategy. Uh, uh, but the uh, the author will argue that this these these can be integrated, right? Like st- tactics and strategy can be integrated together, and he'll even complicate it a little by bringing in a third level, um, grand strategy, and then welding them to the viable system model, and just kind of demonstrating that it all works out. Um, I think it basically does, right? That like um, uh, three functional levels of decision making and action, right? Um, tactics, which he identifies with systems one and two. Strategy is systems three and four, and then grand strategy is system five. Um, the tactics system one and two stuff is the on on the ground operations, which is oriented towards a goal and is autonomous within the limits of the organization's goals. And then strategy is the thing that adaptively formulates the goals. Um, and so it's, this is kind of like it. It's like uh, he has it somewhere in here. The kind of like military sort of definition of the the distinction between tactics and strategy, where Tactics is concerned with a particular engagement, um, and then strategy is what stitches engagements together towards a, a larger goal. Yeah, I think it's a quote from Clausewitz. I think so, yeah. Um, um, yeah, and then grand strategy will be system five, which is the overarching worldview, the kind of non-negotiable values and goals, the stuff that's not up for adaptive like um, replanning. Yeah, and I think this... the the. The tactic strategy, grand strategy thing, I think, comes out of Boyd. So um, I think so. I think he does is, actually reference Boyd. Yeah, this is uh, super relevant because uh, guess what? Our next reading is going to be on John Boyd. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> Finally, we're going to get around to John Boyd. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's only been what two or three fucking years we've been trying to promise. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I like the way I like the way the author kind of like threads the um, the narrative here with like. Yeah, okay, like, so you're autonomous, great, you know, like, rah, rah, red flag in the air. Um, but, like, what are you autonomous doing? Um, and, like, how are you formulating goals? How are you co- collaboratively and collectively formulating goals? Um, how are you, like, deciding on things and agreeing to goals? 
and then doing the autonomous stuff within that gold framework. Um, it's, um, yeah, I think that the way this is framed is quite good. Um, he brings in the, con the continuous planning and re-evaluation from the viable system model stuff, like the system four things in the strategy layer, as being perfectly good and like valid, and especially especially valid if you're doing prefigurative uh, action. Um, you should be strategizing about your prefiguration. Absolutely, right? Like this is the thing that I guess in Brain of the Firm that like won me the most respect for beer because he really did do this even when it was personally destructive to his career. Like it was like, like he really was not committed to a given model and he really was willing to do continuous planning and reevaluation. He actually walked the walk on that and did some really hard thinking in Chile during the revolution to try to adapt right um and like you know this is uh it's a it's a hugely important point um and one that is is i think you know quite not it's it's actually quite counterintuitive because we get into ruts right um and you you, you really have to break out of those if you want to be strategically effective yeah and we, we experience that, like, breaking out of the rut as these, like, periods of disillusionment and stuff like that, right? That, like, because it's, it's a kind of, it's a constant thing if you're, if you're a leftist, right? Like, you've, you've got your tactics level stuff of, like, whatever engagements you're doing in the kind of organizing. And there's the grand strategy level of the commitment to bringing about a classless, um, stateless society. But then in the middle, you've got all the things you try to do, all the strategies you try you might try, I don't know, ultra-left kind of stuff that crashes and burns, and you feel shitty about it for a while. And then you get into electoral stuff that crashes and burns, you feel shitty about it for a while. And we kind of, we experience those shifts in strategy as, I, th I think actually on the left, we, we, we have a really pathological way of going about this, because we experience them as individual, like, periods of depression and, like, collective seemingly, like, betrayals, I guess, that, like, if, if you reevaluate your strategy based on evidence and you conclude, actually, what we just spent a couple of years doing was kind of a waste of time, we need to change our strategy, that can just fucking torpedo, like, your your social life and friendships and shit like that, because because this is a thing we're not very good at doing at all. Um, I, I, think, I think in the Emancipation Network, we're pretty good at, like, honestly reevaluating things but like i think a lot of the left pathologies we see where people flame out and burn out and crash and destroy their friendships and, sh and shit like that is all a pathological case of like doing adaptive reformulation of your goals but not really being aware that that's what you're doing <laughs> you know because we're not self-conscious about this we experience it as traumatic ruptures that ruin our lives yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think we've all been through, like in Emancipation Network, we've all been through that to a certain degree <clears throat> in our political experiences. Um, but, you know, I agree at, 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 as a well, this place where we stand right now, I think we're being better about it. Um, and I, I think just to, to put this in sort of terms of variety, like we have to recognize that to reevaluate um, is you're basically moving to a higher variety problem space because 
your existing strategy already provided a given definition of the problem space, and then you move into a meta language where you have to evaluate framings of them. Um, and so there's like an inherent resistance to that that is based on just wanting to pretty much conserve energy. Um, it's it's like um, it's like when you're learning to play an instrument or something, or if, if you're learning a new technique on an instrument. Like um, an example might be if you've always played guitar right-handed, and then you decided one day you were going to start playing it left-handed. You'd have to do a lot of reprogramming your brain and reprogramming your muscle memory to flip everything around, and you you would eventually get back to a solid place where it's easy and good again. But it'd be a very difficult transition. Or let's say you again sticking with guitar, like maybe you have a very poor picking technique that's actually causing you wrist problems and you have to relearn how to do this most basic operation and like or how to do sweep picking or whatever all the guitar nerds will know what i'm talking about you know but that's that's the painful reprogramming you know yeah or like just like learning a new keyboard layout because you're getting carpal tunnel right yeah 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 because uh, you, you just have that couple of weeks or months where you're just like cursing constantly because it's it's all super difficult because 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 the the grooves that have been worn have to be erased and new grooves have to be worn, um, and you're right that's that's going from a low variety space to a high variety space and back to a low variety space, um, tricky shit you know. It is and like I mean as somebody with um, somebody with ADHD, I think I can like. <laughs> I think I've 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 like simultaneously really good and bad at this at the same time. Because like that, yeah, like the effort to move from one space to another is like really, really hard to get motivated about. Uh, but like actually just sort of like examining a wide variety of things is super easy. So it's it's very like, <laughs> it's, it's very it's contradictory. But yeah, I, I, I sympathize with the, this problem a lot. Uh but I, I um, and of course that also like feeds into like bouts of depression and all that kind of stuff where, yeah, it's really hard to move from one thing to another. But um, I, I would say uh, this is like one of the main things that like, you know, really justifies the existence of system three as something separate from system one, because system one is going to tend to get stuck in these ruts and uh, system three needs to fight against that tendency towards uh, stasis. Yeah. And I mean, like, we, we all know that from our own kind of personal internal experience of, like, that feeling of, like, you're doing something, you get the feeling it's going nowhere, you're banging your head off a wall, and then there's a little part of your brain that says, hey, hey, stop doing that, do something else. And you, you, there's a, you, you feel this palpable kind of mode shift happen. Um, that's, that's a very legitimate thing, and it's the thing that, beer puts into the viable system model is like you have to be able to interrupt a process that seems to be stuck um and if, if we can frame it in these terms right that like adapting our strategy is a legitimate real system three slash four function of our organization then we don't need to experience it as burnout and depression and losing all our friends you know maybe there's a healthier way to do that reformulation if we're actually conscious that that's what we're doing yes yeah yeah if there yeah if it's uh yeah, if it if it is seen from a perspective of continuous adaptation, right? That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's a section then about like how this was a huge problem for anarchism and Occupy. That like 
the pathological aversion to strategy um, that was was on display there. Um, but yeah, um, it can be like if you see strategy as prefigurative, then there isn't a contradiction, and we can do prefigurative strategy. It's cool. It's all good. Yeah, and I think the um, the obsession with tactics uh, that comes out of the nineties um, really. Uh, is closely connected to um, that sort of uh, fear of organization that you were talking about in your experiences with with anarchism uh, when you were younger. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard to do organization when I guess I would say I would say it's easier to focus simply on tactics when you don't want to have an organization. Yeah, like in in my, back when I was in that kind of thing, like um, there were kind of conversations floating around that like we had a kind of weird problem with like people becoming primitivists and just going off the grid and shit like that, and like at a, at a much higher frequency than should happen in you know if if you can imagine an ideal gas that has some potential for some of its molecules to turn into primitivists at any given time, we were we were seeing that happen at a much higher rate than, than you would you would predict, and it was kind of because I mean even my kind of ADHD adult fucking adolescent brain could put it together that like this was happening because. Uh, it was one of two outcomes from the phobia of um, organization. Like one of them was the obsessive focus on tactics and the kind of ineffectiveness of of the higher level operations, or the other way you can go is to just say, "Oh my God, organization is the original sin of humanity. We have to delete language and return to monkey." You know, and <laughs> even to me, it it did seem sketchy that this milieu that I was involved in produced this outcome pretty frequently. <laughs> And more frequently than we wanted. And that, again, I, I didn't have the vocabulary to describe my concerns at the time, but I do now. And that, like, it seemed like a huge problem that, like, we were framing organization and effectiveness. Like, the, the things that we were supposed to believe in, like, you know, autonomous self-organization, we were kind of framing those as inherently bad. And then people were coming to the conclusion that those were bad and then deciding to go live in the woods and forget how to read yeah. as a result. Yeah. Weird shit, you know, when you actually put it together. Yeah, I, I I think it's uh it's extra complicated because you see things like that um video clip that was recently recorded in Thailand where uh there's an intersection and um there were uh three armies of uh monkeys that were in war with each other over the territory. Um and they very much behaved in an organized fashion. Like they they like it, it more so than you would expect. Like, obviously, they weren't Roman legionnaires or anything, but, like, you know, they they had lieutenants and generals, and when the general fled, everybody else fled, and, you know, it was very clearly, like, three separate armies fighting with one another in this, this intersection. So even if you return to monkey, you can't escape organization, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. That's, that's something I've kind of loved about listening to... Um... Uh, Fight Like an Animal, uh, Arnold Schroeder's podcast, where he, he really makes a very convincing argument that, like, humans are, in fact, actually animals, like, and that, like, the behaviors we exhibit are not that alien from um, other animals that are similar to us and stuff, and, like, yeah, again, even the notion of return to monkey, like, they have politics, you know, they... <laughs> yeah, they, they do, they absolutely kind of shit, like, do. They have symbolic thought, because, you know, they, ha they have ways of communicating with each other, you know, um... They have organization. Yeah, it was even like the the war was set off by like 
you know, long-standing feuds between these, like, monkey chieftains and, like, personal slights that they had against each other. <laughs> yeah. So what what makes us thought that they what makes us think that they don't have symbolic thought if they can understand like you know somebody dissing them and like beefs <laughs> and shit like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, they're they're monkeys. They're not idiots. You know, this is the thing. They, they're yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not they're not incredibly smart, but they're they're pretty smart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's usually the it's usually what you get with like smart animals. It's like oh yeah, like you know. They're smarter than you think. They're not as smart as an average adult human, but they're they're like they're they're definitely as smart as like an adult, a human child. It's just like humans humans like mutate from children into this extra weird thing when we become adults, uh, uh, which is is really an outlier. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess yeah, strategy good thumbs up you know um it actually can be integrated into prefigurative democratic good shit politics you know there's no problem here it seems um yeah and i I would also say like in in the name of fairness that uh this uh obsession with tactics uh was also very characteristic of uh marxism at the time because um autonomism was all the rage and uh yeah it, it 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 did a lot of hand waving about strategy, um, it like really, really stretched on a lot of things. So yeah, it was it was, was definitely was not a, a purely thing. anarchist thing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was extremely in the air at the time. Um, uh, yeah, the the whole go with the flow sort of thing. Um, are the cool kids still doing autonomism now? Is that, is I that I, no? I don't think so. I think I, I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, the, the kids are getting into Bordega. It's fucking weird, you know. My, my impression is the kid. The the kids are going in all kinds of weird directions right now. I know. It's, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, you know, uh, they're certainly they've certainly read more theory than most kids had when I when I was a kid. But uh, that that is the consistently amazing thing about all this kind of shit these days is that like. You know, you could you could just come across a sixteen year old who's who's red fucking bored again and shit like that. And they go, What? What is this world? Like where the fuck am I? This isn't my this isn't my beautiful house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just completely lost, you know. Um It's it's <laughs> I think it's mostly it's 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 sort of the I guess a lot of that stuff is the product of the analyses of Occupy that happened when we were younger and coming up with prescriptions for what to do in response and you know now we're sort of lying in our bed um yeah i i think even beyond that i just find it very funny that like the kids these days like the the 16 year olds are like instead of drinking they're just reading hegel which is just a very strange pastime (laughs) you know i I don't know how common that is but it's pretty funny It's fucking weird you know it's like uh well Um, you know weed is legal now so uh so we're just going to read the phenomenology of spirit <laughs> instead. I, but hey, what were we saying about Stafford Beer? You know, the, the kids have to be totally alien to you, you know? Yes, exactly. No, I, I welcome it. I welcome it. As long as they don't turn into fascists or Stalinists, I, I'm, I'm very happy with that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, and I guess like we, we've probably already talked about a lot of the grand strategy stuff. It's identified with system five and the kind of like higher level 
higher level kind of durable goals, the ones that aren't really up for adaptation. Uh, identity, basically ideology, I guess. It's just, it's, um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think this was interesting to me because, you know, I was introduced to the term grand strategy by Paradox Interactive Games, right? Like uh, Europa Universalis or Crusader Kings or Hearts of Iron or whatever. Um, and the d definition of grand strategy here is fairly different from what is meant in those games where grand strategy in those games is pretty much just like strategy, but big, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> literally grand strategy. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like literally just big strategy. Um, like instead of fighting a war, you know, over a year in this country, you're fighting wars across huge amounts of time over huge amounts of geog geographical expanse, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there is a level of connection between the two because like essentially I think, you know, your Europa Universalis is the best example of this where you're pretty much like uh, playing as the geist of your nation uh, you're not really playing as a person um, because it's like your monarchs come and go, but they're pretty much just a, a tribute that you have to work with. But really what you're manifesting is like the historical geist of your nation that is like developing in history and some like weird cool. ass Hegelian thing. Um, <laughs> but like, I think the, the, the point of conversion with the definition of grand strategy here is that grand strategy sort of refers to yeah this like identity or ideology that is uh persistent across um various strategic initiatives um right uh it may change but it is nevertheless like uh, a a broader um identity than than any one thing um in that sense it's it's similar so to, to put it in dumber terms, like if you think of like civilization, would grand strategy be like picking cultural victory over economic victory as your 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 like end goal? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because like yeah, because it's like oh well, my my like eternal essence of the nation uh, and my immortal god king that I have chosen. Um, for this run of civilization uh, is disposed towards a cultural victory. And um, and so, yeah, we're that's what we're going to focus on in this game. That's our general orientation to the world. Um, yeah, I think that that fits, um, you know, uh, it, you could kind of see it, I guess, like there would be some disjuncture there in some cases where it's like, uh oh, like this isn't working out. I need to retool but I'm still stuck with this grand strategy of being better at culture. Um, uh, but yeah, generally speaking, I think they match up pretty well. Um, yeah, strong chapter. I think this um, really, really good stuff. Quite enlightening. Um, we get on to chapter five, Control Part Two, uh, Effective Freedom and Collective Autonomy. Um, this is where we're going to start getting into like how to re reconcile the like, part-whole tension that was mentioned earlier. Um, and the he kind of frames it in terms of like there's the two definitions of autonomy at work here uh, that can be reconciled in this anarchist cybernetics framework. Um, first, you have functional autonomy in the kind of Burian sense where you have like units having operational autonomy in their niche, but with restrictions. Um, 
And then there's collective autonomy, which is the freedom of individuals like being organized collectively. Um, it's a way of getting over this tension in that like there are there are very individualistic strains of anarchism that are like all about like total unfettered freedom. And so the the functional autonomy with its like okay, you have operational autonomy within limits is totally unacceptable for that kind of individualistic strain of anarchism. Um, but then the way to counter that is to say, well, freedom for individuals doesn't pre-exist their social organization. Like the, free, the, the possibility of freedom as an individual arises from collective organization that produces freedom. It's a liberty machine um, in the Berean terminology, right? Like you have to organize a liberty machine to produce liberty as the, the possible conditions of liberty. And so you, you, get, you get into this like reconciliation of these two things, right? Um, and then crucially that this process of collective, collective autonomy can be, like the process of restricting autonomy and deciding what's restricted and where can be collectively managed and negotiated. Yes, I think that um, we, we kind of talked about a very similar topic on uh, from Alpha to Omega when we were talking about understanding class and sort of um, sociological methodologies. And I guess, you know, everybody in that discussion kind of came down on the point of like, it's preferable if we consider the individual to be on some level ontologically prior to the social um, because you get it around that thing of, uh, well, the individual is just a function of the social. So therefore, the individual could be anything the social wants them to be. And they don't have any like fundamental um, uh, autonomy. And you'd have no grounds to resist the, uh, the, the social. Yeah. Yeah. Like philosophically, they don't have any grounds because like, well, your autonomy is just a function of the social. So like your, your individual, your individuality is just a function of the social. So why would you assert it, uh, against the social, uh, at, at an individual level? Um, so I think there is like a certain amount of danger to this line of thinking, um, I think it is like factually largely correct in the sense that like, yeah, our individuality is, you know, I mean, obviously it has a biological component that's completely ignored here, but, uh, um, and that is very important, but, um, it, to a large extent, it is a function of our, our socialization. Um, and that that's, that's completely fair. Um, but like, I think there is a certain degree to which we need to acknowledge the persistence of individuality as a like lived experience. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned like um, the bio the biology thing there because like that's the thing that comes up on fight like an animal right that like in in a constructivist in a totally socially constructivist framework there's no basis on which to push back against social injustice because. If everything is socially constructed, then you you just have no basis to complain against any feature of your society. But for 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 Arnold, it's like this can be helped by just reintroducing the fact that human beings are organisms, and the the fact that all animals despise being caged. <laughs> they will all fight you tooth and fucking nail to like not be caged in that kind of way, right? So it's 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 like the 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 biological organism like it's 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 there, there's an upside to admitting human nature in some way that like you can actually admit that the desire for freedom is actually kind of like 
basic to being an organism, you know, that like, maybe that's the extra component there that makes it work, you know? There's something positive to say about anarchism on this level, at least, which is that anarchism has historically been much more willing to make arguments from human nature than Marxism. Yeah, true. That is true. Uh, Because Marxism is... Marxism is not entirely uh, socially constr- or it's certainly not entirely socially constructivist, but it's 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 also not entirely. Um, I would guess I, I guess I would say holistic, uh, but it's largely holistic in the way it thinks about things. Um, so, like you know, you have things like, for instance, like in Marx, you got like species being right, like. Which is kind of a reference to human nature. Um, uh, But like, yeah, it's generally speaking, you look at the history of Marxism and it tends to fall on that side of of social construction over uh, biological uh, essentialism. Um, And maybe there needs to be, yeah, maybe there needs to be, uh, well, there certainly needs to be room for, you know, resort to biological description. Cause like, you know, I, I personally felt this very strongly when, um, I was finally diagnosed with ADHD and I realized that like, yes, like a lot of the ways my ADHD manifest are, um, contingent on like the current capitalist society we live in. But on another level, like I share so many, uh, personality traits with other people that have ADHD on like a very deep level. And um, that is certainly determined biologically to a large extent. Um, And, uh, you know, just uh, accepting that as a truth was actually a positive thing for me because before that I attributed all of these things to either my personal moral failings or... um, Uh, my upbringing, Um, I eventually realized like, oh, no, it's like it's a lot more complicated than that, because like, yeah, the upbringing is important. But actually, like a lot of these things are persistent across various upbringings and like they may be more aggravated in some cases than others, but they are manifest in really quite different circumstances. So, um, uh, you know, that was actually quite a liberating thing to to realize because it was like, oh, like so much of my personality which I saw as like very individual is actually like, you know, biologically social in a way that I did not understand before. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's an important upside to that kind of realization is that like, and it, again, this is another point that Arnold will t- touch on, on that podcast is that like when you kind of admit that there are like just common, like human beings are the same kind of organism you can admit to us sharing a lot of commonality, you know, that like, um, we all feel hunger in basically the same way. Um, and we all feel these other, and so that that's like, again, yeah, it's, we are social on a biological level that like, it is, it is human nature to be social and to want to be free. Um, which I think is, is a good thing to kind of like mix into this, this kind of discussion. Um, it's, it's that kind of way of reconciling that whole, like, oh, how will we ever have freedom if we have to admit that, you know, there is a human nature. It's like, well, just say the human nature is wanting freedom. You're fucking done. Like you write it on the back of a postcard and it's finished, you know? (laughs) Again, like many early anarchists did make that argument. Right. So it's, 
points to the anarchists uh, on that point uh, <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think that um, when it comes to this question of like, well, uh, the autonomy of system one versus the uh, imperatives of the organization, um, I don't think we can purely reduce this to a question of like the social dialectically reflecting back upon itself um, because there's like, I don't know, there's like a kind of individual baseline that is difficult to wish away um, in that in that manner. Um, At the very minimum, like the individual will kick against the cage, right? If, if things go badly for it. Um, yeah. And, and like, that's fine to a degree. Like it's okay for there to be dissent and discord, uh, certainly between system three and one, it's, it's entirely to be expected. Uh, but like at the same time, there does have to kind of be a final instance where, like this needs to be resolved on a level that addresses the individual as a reality, um, which could mean ejecting the individual or the organize like or the system one, like the the group um, from the organization. Uh, it could mean like splitting. It could mean you know there's all these classic solutions to this problem. It's just acknowledging that like you know oh like exile is a fundamentally like long i think with a very long history in human society uh or or uh you know splits or or whatever it, it's like you know these ways of addressing fundamental discourse they exist and we have to like accept that they're part of organizational theory because if we don't like that's a very flawed theory absolutely yeah uh, we, can, we can't assume harmony um in its um in in total um but yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, I think this this is a pretty good breakdown of this um, these two definitions of autonomy and how they're they're not you know they don't necessarily need to be in conflict. Like we don't need to take the side. Like we can we can recognize individual autonomy without going all in on the like hyper individualistic stuff. Yeah, and um, I, I mean, this is like very pertinent to our lived experience currently, right? Because so much of the um, the diehard anti-vax stuff is uh, very much this, uh, like, um, not individualistic anarchism necessarily, but like, like ultra individualism, uh, uh, where like the like regard for anyone else other than yourself is seen as weakness or fundamentally immoral. Uh, and like, that's like, like, because, you know, so much of this like vaccine mandate and, and, you know, lockdowns and, and vaccination campaigns and so on and so on is, uh, is, is really like a, a, a profound example of, yeah, like the, the needs of the organization as a whole, uh, coming up against the will of individuals uh, or of, of, of substantial groups of individuals. It would be wrong to say like their thinking is actually individual, but it, it like they present it in a very individual individualistic fashion and conceive of it that way. Um, so like, you know, this isn't something we can just like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Like actually this matters a lot and it matters. It matters to a degree that I think 
prior to COVID, uh, people on the left did not appreciate um, that much, like did not understand as like, oh, actually, this is like a really significant issue. Uh, but now now we see like, oh, yeah, like liberty versus, uh, you know, fraternity is a pretty substantial divide sometimes. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's like the we've kind of missed the missed the mark in a couple of ways. Like I think we, uh, it underplayed underplayed the possibility that these kind of like um, this this kind of anti-vax individualist kind of resistance would actually undermine collective efforts and stuff. And we've I don't know kind of missed it from the other direction as well, where like um, we've seen we've also seen plenty of like lib and left takes where it's basically like. Oh, just just arrest them and fucking inject them at gunpoint, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, like just just crush all resistance. Like you know, the 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 needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, let's let's go for like maximum utilitarianism here. Uh, so none none of those are terribly terribly appealing or terribly reassuring, actually. Because I mean, I don't know. Like COVID has been so revealing of so many things. Where like um, I don't know, just just seeing so much of the kind of like left or whatever just like simping for the state you know and for like <laughs> yeah. for no good reason because the state has absolutely fucking completely fucked their their response to it but also like the state can do no wrong fauci can do no wrong that's sh- that sort of shit and then the state is the only one with the budget for a vaccination campaign <laughs> therefore must simp for them uh it's it's uh yeah it's 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 really like uh uh stockholm syndrome sort of situation i think that we find ourselves in there um yeah and it's the sort of thing that's got me kind of worried that like i mean like this whole book is an anti-status kind of book and we're anti-status marxists and we're amongst an anti-status kind of milieu at emancipation network but like looking at the kind of response to all this stuff starts to seem like i don't know like a a left politics beyond the state might just be completely impossible right now Um, (laughs) because we're like one of six or seven people in the world who are fucking talking about this stuff i don't know it's not reassuring you know looking at the the contemporary left yeah i think the pushback on the right is um or that the pushback is coming exclusively from the right in very like duplicitous ways is very concerning um uh and the left impulse to pursue the most draconian policy possible is i think i think it gets like it gets to sort of fundamental assumptions we have about human rationality and that like a lot of this behavior that we're seeing um being so obstinate about vaccination and stuff, it kind of kind of flies in our assumptions, uh, in the face of our assumptions about ooh, human nature, right? Um, that like people are like uh, fundamentally on some level um, uh, selfish, uh, irrational in a selfish way. Like they they desire to they desire to put their uh, their their or they, they desire to live over most other concerns and will prioritize living over dying. Like they will, they will manage risk in the face of an obviously uh, frightening situation. Um, and it also flies in the face of a lot of our ideas about um, uh, public rationality. 
um, that 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 groups of people tend to reason better uh, than individuals, and that like you know individual weirdos aren't likely to really get much traction with uh, large groups of people. Um, in other ways, it 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 certainly agrees with a lot of our ideas, right? Like a sort of about like the outsized influence of um, uh, moneyed media interests and their ability to manipulate people for political gain. Um, uh, that part makes sense, but like there's a certain, like if you just follow that line of thought to its, its logical conclusion, it's like, well, okay. So there are evil people out there who are manipulating dupes into doing things that are very dangerous and hurting everybody else. So the logical thing to do would first be to get rid of the people who are manipulating them, uh, which we cannot do because they're too rich. Um, so the next logical thing to do would be to control the dupes because they can't be trusted to reason for themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a false consciousness problem of that like classical sort. Right. Um, and that's how you end up with like ostensible Marxists arguing for the proletariat being treated like cattle, <laughs> you know, by the state. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's it, it, like, it's, I very, uh, very skep, like I'm very concerned about solving this problem through employer vaccine mandates because it's like, yeah, you're just kind of like stamping down on those system ones in the name of capital, in the name of public safety, where capital's interests and public safety's interests are identified with each other. That's pretty scary to me. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, obviously we're in a real crisis. You can't just like armchair philosopher this shit. Like it's, it's, it's really tough. Uh, and, and like, there have been sort of like more care-based approaches of like recognizing like, oh, these are like the epistemologies or like the worldviews of different groups of people. And we have to appeal to those and like, you know, acknowledge the lack of access to traditional medical institutions or the ways in which traditional medical institutions have actively harmed so many people um, uh, in the name of capital. Uh, but yeah, it's really scary. And uh, uh, I think that, you know, it just really throws into stark relief the kinds of problems that are being talked about in this chapter. Um, Absolutely right. Um, and like, yeah, we're... Oh, we're 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 we're, we're kind of not really have haven't been prepared enough to be able to have these kinds of discussions. Like, I mean, in in general, like, I mean, in these societies, right? Like the U.S. and the U.K. and all these kind of places, right? Like, balancing off functional and collective autonomy is it's not even something we've ever really been debating. And then, like, especially in the left, like, I think it just it it kind of all catching us unawares. It kind of doesn't inspire a lot of confidence for how we're going to handle future crises, you know. Um, it doesn't inspire confidence that we'll actually try to deal with this, you know, and to try to balance this thing off. It's because the like the actions of the individual can have such outsized consequences in this case, right? Like that, you know, with the with the Delta variant, it's like, oh, okay, if you're exposed to somebody with Delta, um, for like five to 10 seconds, you can get infected. 
Um, so, yeah, it's an extremely high variety like possibility space that like individuals can't deal with, and so it's 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 what collective organization is supposed to deal with, but that's absent. All we have is the state, and that's a fucking threadbare but like weirdly strong, like kind of machine that like doesn't do very much, but what it does, it does very rigorously and very brutally. Um, there's there's no middle ground. There's nothing. There's nothing there. There's there's no like social organization that like even facilitates the possibility of mediating these kinds of uh, trade-offs. Yeah. And, and it's very difficult to appeal to individual responsibility. I mean, obviously, like, that's a thing that leftists have been hostile to for a long time because of the way in which it individualizes blame and, and hides social problems. But, but it's, it's very difficult to appeal to that in a highly atomized society like the one we have, right? Because you would think like, yeah, individual responsibility, okay, that, that makes sense on some level because each individual can be responsible for so much infection. Um, but at, uh, we, like, I guess as leftists, we would only really expect individuals to be consistently uh, responsible in like a, like, strong embedded social context that that like is rational because of its like strength and um and uh its 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 capacities uh which or when people feel that they have ties to each other which they kind of evidently don't like you know the alienation is so deep you know um because i mean even thinking about stuff that's less um consequential than covid like i mean like there's there's a park down the street right like and it's it's usually just fucking filthy with like vodka bottles and like shit like that thrown everywhere and that's that's a that's a problem that could be very easily solved by those motherfuckers just not leaving the bottles fucking lying around right but also they exist in a social context in which is absolute atomization and yeah it's like the, the, nobody feels they're connected to anyone so shrug you know yes yes so yeah so it's it's very tough um and yeah, I guess just acknowledging that like both sides of that conversation have a certain amount of validity. Um, like it doesn't solve anything immediately, uh, but like in the context of what we're discussing in this book, I think like, yeah, it's important to say like it can't be overbearing collective power. It also can't be um, outsized recklessness, even if it is for like very minor actions like just i don't know going outside uh, and uh, getting some coffee when you're in the middle of a pandemic and you might be infected yeah and and let's let's not have let's not have leftists arguing for rounding up the fucking mcdonald's employees at gunpoint and force vaccinating them and then sending them to work <laughs> you know let's let's maybe have less of that on the left <laughs> well yeah because that is just that is just like the the more immiserated section of the proletariat being vaccinated for the benefit of the wealthier section of the proletariat who would go to McDonald's to buy food, right? Like, and I mean, like, again, I want to emphasize that, like, if you look at the actual fatality statistics for COVID, it's overwhelmingly oppressed people who have been killed. I don't want to suggest that, like, oh, yeah, the McDonald's employees are doing just fine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's only, like, these... Uh, these uh, uh, people who have money to eat out that are going to be uh, 
uh, adversely affected uh, because it's it's really very much the opposite. Uh, but yeah, um, there is a certain degree of like I wish everything would be sorted so that I could go back to Starbucks. Um, mm-hmm. Grill pills, you know? Yeah. Uh, what a world, Jesus Christ. Um, anyway, uh, uh, chapter six, uh, communication, part one, information and noise in the age of social media. Um, I thought that was an interesting, interesting chapter, a little bit odd, but yeah, you know. It, it has a really fundamental problem for me, which is that, um, it does not define its terms well enough. Like, like there, there's, there's this real focus on this thing called pink noise. Um, and the only thing like it's, it's based on like certain communications research that had been done, but the study it's based on isn't explained well enough to actually understand what it refers to. It, it kind of just says like, I, what I got out of it was kind of like very much like, uh, uh, you know, like just like the common sense of the golden mean, like not too much, not too little, just the right amount. That's like, that's kind of all I got out of this because I didn't actually understand on any kind of deep level what pink noise was. Um, Yeah. um, So like, I don't know, like the, the, the the three noises that'll be brought up later are um, white noise, pink noise and brown noise. And my kind of, Lay, lay person's audio engineering slash electrical engineering understanding of those things is that white noise is noise where the content changes extremely fast and is just totally inconsistent. It, so there's rapid change of features and then the features don't stick around very long. Um, brown noise is relatively slow moving where it the content changes slower and like frequency features stick around a bit longer. So it's like be like an LFO or something like a like a beating noise, slow beating noise. Yeah, and I guess like if if you get an app on your phone that does the whole white noise for sleep sort of stuff, and you put on the white noise, it's like you know that kind of thing, and then brown noise is more like you know that kind of lower thing, and then pink noise is somewhere in the middle where it's yeah, it's not it's not not too fast, not too slow. You know, thanks Aristotle for the the golden mean stuff, um, and it's positive that. These are, like, you can kind of, you can understand something about a system by the characteristic noise that it has, um, so that a highly chaotic system will be typified by white noise, a highly static and, like, bureaucratic system will be typified by brown noise, and then pink noise typifies the kind of good shit that we like from Stafford Beer and, you know, all that kind of stuff, where it's adaptive, it's kind of in the middle, and so on. I... I, if I didn't have the electrical engineering background, I probably wouldn't be able to piece that together quite so easily. But yeah, on the basis of uh, you know doing a bunch of sound synthesis stuff, I I pretty much got those points. But because <clears throat> like for instance, uh, you know you can like it's like a, if you use like a feedback filter on a synthesizer, you push it too much and it becomes white noise uh, because it's just too chaotic, right? Uh, and if you turn it off, then you get like, I don't know, like a sine wave, like something super simple. Right. Um, but, uh, problem I had was I couldn't really understand how that related to like communication strategies or like 
the nature of things that would actually come up on like social media. It was like, like, oh yeah, I get it. Like there's like, you know, this, the one that's really boring and then there's the one that's too much. And then there's the one that's like, oh yeah, this is like musical. This has some, this has, this has like a timbre to it. It's, 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 it's interesting. And it's like, okay, like, like I get that. But then what does that have to do with organization? Cause like, that's where I couldn't make the connection. And I think that's probably what the study that, uh, Swan was referring to kind of got into more? Yeah, okay. I think I may be able to explain it, but it, I, I'll agree it, it is pretty tricky to extract this from the page. Um, I think this, this one could have done with a lot more editing. So the, the initial framing is like um, uh, information theory and early, er, early cybernetics, right, where organization was understood as communication, right, and like there was this particular focus on feedback communication, right, es- establishing this causal loop, regulating behavior of the system. Um, I think the author then raises the question of, like, a, in a given system, how should you facilitate effective communication? Like, if, if the feedback needs to be effective, the communication needs to be effective, so how should you fac- facilitate it? And for the early information theorists and cyberneticians, they had a kind of authoritarian model of the relation between signal and noise, like an authoritarian model of communication, where signal or the message and the substance of the communication is decided by the sender, and then any noise that's introduced on the channel must be removed in order for the receiver to interpret the message correctly. So there is is a defined meaning that is decided by one authority, and whoever's receiving the message has to remove noise to decode it. Um, So noise is understood as a corruption. Um, I'm familiar with this sort of idea from, like... uh I guess, um, like Stuart Hall's adaptation of cybernetic theory in um, encoding decoding, where he talks about how like there's a certain degree of creativity in encoding a message and there's a certain degree of creativity or play in decoding a message uh, where like the recipient of the message actually has a active role in decoding it. Like, for instance, you know, like the same public health message will play differently with regards to COVID to different audiences, right? And that's a matter of interpretation. And so like the, the it's not that authoritarian thing where the receiver is just like, like a dumb pipe that just is like, oh yeah, yes, I, I got it. It's like imprinted on my brain, like a, like a, like a manuscript or a, a tablet or something. Um, yeah. Cause like th- this, this authoritarian model comes from engineering, right? Like uh, where, the, the the design of the system is designed from outside by agents that aren't the system. So like if you're if one machine sends the number twenty-four in binary to another machine, it the receiver really does have to actually decode the number twenty-four in order for the whole thing to work. Um and so any noise that would interfere with that process has to be removed. Um he then moves on to saying, well, in social media platforms, in the kind of networked communications we've been talking about in this book, um they're usually very noisy, like Twitter is super noisy, um, and the reader is trying to select meanings from this mega channel and the noise needs to be filtered. However, if we think more critically about the noise, like like the Stuart Hall stuff, right, like we'll find that in social communication, like it, it's not engineering, right? Like there isn't a, an authoritarian, an, author, an authorial kind of like decision of what the message is. As you said, it's an interpretation thing. It's a conversation. And so... If that's different, then we have to treat noise differently. Um, and so, you know, 
noise, noise in these kind of social systems should be dealt with rather than removed. It's a different kind of filtration you'd have to do. And we should then ask, like, the, the, the early information theorists and engineers would ask themselves, what kind of, how should we build a system so as to facilitate effective communication in this authoritarian model of messaging? But we should ask ourselves how to facilitate collective autonomy in distributed social networks, um, which is a different sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's like, uh, so he then gets into like how it's, it's calling back to Gordon Pask, right? With the conversational model of communication so that for Pask and for Beer and these kind of guys, organization is conversation, which is a subtype of communication. So for the early cyberneticists, organization is communication. For the later cyberneticians, organization is conversation, um, which is a subtype of communication. Um, and so you're, you're conversing to generate meaning and agreement and all that kind of thing. And then the noise thing is then like, what kinds of noise would facilitate these kinds of conversational systems? Right. And it's posited that brown noise would be typical of an authoritarian kind of system, a bureaucratic system that's very static, whereas pink noise would be characteristic of... And again, we're not removing the noise, we're kind of actually encouraging it, because um, there's another note here that, like, you know, in, in the engineering sense, noise is something to be despised and to always be removed, but in social systems, noise can be like a site of resistance to authoritarian domination. It's like noise against the engineer's mindset, you know? Um, yeah, it's like the um, that famous example of like the uh, uh, the sign language um, uh, interpreter on uh, one of uh, on a like in one of these color revolutions who who did not. Uh, transmit the information uh like one-to-one -one from the verbalized thing the anchor was saying into sign uh and was actually like signing uh like a subversive message um fantastic yeah so like noise can be resistance right like and it, especially when we frame like the original framing of noise as a very authoritarian framing of it it's that engineer's mindset thing um stem brain sort of framing and then where where it is like, oh, I have decided what meaning is, you have to eat it, um, is, is the kind of engineer's thing. And that's something you should definitely be pushing back on, and noise is a way to push back on it. Um, so then, yeah, it's like, what kinds of noise should we encourage and preserve rather than stripping out of these kinds of systems? Right, so like... Did that actually make sense in the end? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it points in a useful direction, at least. Like, I think that... Like one thing you've mentioned previously, I think in the beer reading group maybe was that uh, it's important to remember in these communication systems that the the trans uh, the, the the communication is not about um, the sending of a package from uh, from sender to recipient. It's about the coordination of behavior between the sender and recipient. Yeah, the the back and forth dialogue is the is the communication. Yeah. Right. So in the sort of like one to many authoritarian uh, model, it's like I don't know, like Netflix streams out uh, whatever nailed it or some streaming show, and all of the recipient boxes 
get it off the server and display it at the maximum possible re resolution without any hitches. Uh, so what is on, it's, it's very like, you know, uh, um, the copy is, 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 uh, faithful to the original. Um, but if we're talking about a communication system that is like less one-sided, then it's, it's more that there is a feedback to the sender from the recipient in the sense of like communication uh, in the sense of conversation. Um, it's like the reciprocal adaptation that we saw in Pickering, right? Yes. Yes. And that's like noisy in the sense that like it's um, either there's, there's room for interpretation of the signal that is going to be sort of like analog and unpredictable. It's like, you know, people who, still watch stuff on a CRT because it, it looks cool to them, even though it's like a low resolution image um, uh, or uh, like, you know, the play in the analog hardware there is, is, is creative and interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then there's the sort of possibility that that could like, I don't know, filter back on the understanding of the original it's 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 it, it alters it so therefore it becomes noisy um is that sort of the understanding of it sort of i guess i guess th the thing they're trying to maybe get to is like um uh i'm sure it's a thing we talked about before but like the kind of reciprocal pedagogy sort of thing of like not just dictating to the student but having a kind of back and forth between student and teacher, which refines the understanding, you know, that's, that's the model we're getting towards there. Whereas like the, you know, dictating from the pulpit thing is the, the previous authoritarian model. I think you're on the right track though with the, the feedback stuff, like, cause it's also like noise is error, you know, and feedback is error correcting feedback. And so th th that, that has to be kind of central to it here, right? That like, and actually like, there's something very interesting here where Stepping out from the engineering mindset to the, like, social mindset, like, you'd have to redefine what error is, you know? Because in an engineering, in, like, a servo mechanism, um, a simple servo mechanism, there's very clearly defined error um, and very clearly defined, like, error-correcting feedback mechanisms. But um, amongst a social system um, or, you know, even a, a teacher-student kind of dialogue, like, it's not... it's or even just a dynamic engineering system, like uh, a sufficiently complex engineering system, right? Yeah, like er error is different there, you know, and it's it doesn't fit the kind of authoritarian mold of noise that always has to be stripped out. I think for like, when you look at like Pask and his kind of like weird, like interactive machines that do dynamic things, the feedback circuits are not really error circuits. They're, they're more generative. And so the, the noise in the system is generative? Yeah, so it, it's it's kind of like um, the original is open to revision by the error or by the noise. Um, yeah, so it's it's not just like, oh, like here's the here is the definitive master copy uh, and and then everything else is meant to be as close to the master as possible. Um, it's actually, oh no, like the master can be altered uh, by feedback 
And therefore, it's like if you compare it to the master, it's noisy. But if you have a open understanding, a conversational understanding of what is fundamental, then it's actually um, it's not it, 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 it may be noise, somewhat noisy, but it's also not um, erroneous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that there's a couple of senses of noise, right? That like um, noise as error and then there's noise as high variety stuff uh, that we don't recognize as signal. But then the whole distinction between signal and noise was a kind of authoritarian judgment in the first place. So in some ways, we're kind of when we're saying that like pink noise is desirable for these kinds of social systems, we're actually kind of stepping out of that category of noise. We're kind of getting to a point where we don't really recognize these high variety components as errors as such. They're not undesirable elements. They're actually generative inside the system. The, 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 the high variety content of the signal is actually desirable um, rather than something to be stripped away. So it, it's the, the term noise might obscure more than it reveals, possibly. And I think maybe maybe the white, pink and brown noise comparisons here might obscure more than it reveals. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the issue I, I mostly had with it because, um, yeah, I think it's it's just like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say like signal versus noise is like inherently authoritarian. I, I think it's more just like it's like uh, it, it sort of reflects the idea of like variety attenuation, right? Um, yeah, sure. But I, I guess like with this kind of later model of noise, we're more saying that like we may not have prejudged what the signal is and what the noise is, is going to be. We might interpret some signals as signals and some as noise, but it's more selective and adaptive and it's it's there's less of an authorial intent to it. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 dynamic. So it's like, you know, oh well uh you know if somebody uses um uh specialist uh jargon in a conversation with you, it could originally just be noise. Uh, but if you if you learn the jargon, then that could actually be signal, right? By like saying like, oh no, I need some clarification. What does that mean? And then blah blah blah. And then and then the the context is redefined. So yeah, totally. Yeah, that's that's the, that's getting the right direction there. And it's like we're that's kind of where we're landing is that we're we're still able to do filtration because it's it's essential. Like we're in the Berean framework, you have to be doing filtration on the high variety signals you're receiving. But we're approaching the filtration without prejudice, hopefully. And um, okay, yeah, that that make that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Um, mm, yeah, cool. Yeah, we got so <laughs> I think uh, I think when it comes to things like yeah, things like Twitter, it's like well, you know, I I would kind of want like uh, spam posts filtered out, but. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I want a variety of different perspectives, uh, you know, uh, uh, displayed and displayed clearly enough for me to understand, but not so uh, simply that uh, there is nothing of interest for me there. So again, again, it comes back to the golden bead, but there's a lot of in intermediate steps to get there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. Um there's some there's some very in interesting stuff here, and it's, I think it's maybe this chapter could have done with a bit more editing or a bit of a reframing. Um, I think it's something I might want to come back to in later later readings. Is like, um, does does the concept of error still apply straightforwardly when it's transplanted from the engineering context to the social context, or does it have to be 
radically redefined? And do, do we have to maybe reread some of what, what sort of the cyberneticians were writing? Um, were they kind of un, uh, uncritically transplanting a concept without reevaluating it? Maybe? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think there was a lot of like postmodern thinking that sort of like tried to think through those issues. Um, but uh, it's it's worth considering. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So a chapter about how to organize for good noise, uh, noise for noise for music's sake. Uh, yeah. It's chapter seven, communication part two, building alternative social media. Um, I, I found this to be a bit bit lighter. Um, it has some has some interesting kind of like stuff in it, but um, uh, it's kind of like. Uh, going from the critique of like social media as it exists to like how should it be um like how would we facilitate these kinds of conversational interactive um cybernetic kind of systems um how would we facilitate this kind of self-organization we would actually need new platforms to do it um and so on yeah it's kind of like i mean a lot of this stuff is sort of things we've covered previously on other episodes uh, because, you know, we, we've had this orientation towards tech and telecommunications and social media and all that kind of stuff, um, platform capitalism and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very much like there's these, these four, uh, critiques of social media that, uh, Swan identifies as being out there. Um, so the first one was, uh, surveillance and suppression. So basically just like, oh, like, you're trying to post a thing on, um, you know, Chinese social media, but uh, it gets suppressed by the state because it includes some comment about Xi, uh, Xi or whatever. Uh, like, you know, very simple, like censors are censoring you that that kind of that kind of uh, critique. Um, uh, the second one was the political economy. So this is the this is the uncompensated labor critique, which is. I think completely out to lunch, but um, we could start to check on that. Yeah, yeah, we could we could substitute in there the platform capitalism critique, which we've already covered on the show. Uh, so, you know, like unfortunately, Swan falls in with the group of people who uh, believe that uh, Facebook has an infinite rate of exploitation that they're doing oh, because people are <laughs> posting on there for free, uh, which is. Uh, 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 very fanciful. Um, um, I think the the only like the only way I could read that theory in any kind of positive light is that it's essentially saying that because the work is free, it really doesn't fit under the category of exploitation. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's essentially saying, well, it's infinite. It's like, well. Is it really infinite or is it actually just like the not a number uh, uh, error that you get for putting something in the wrong class? Right. Like it's, it's just it's it, just it, not like it's not socially necessary labor time. It's not subject to any kind of like wage relation. It's not subject to the kind of discipline you get in a wage relation. It's not getting squeezed for like the ratio of, um, you know, the wage cost versus the value produced and all that kind of shit. Let's just it's just. None of those factors are there, but that's that's Cernischek's critique from platform capitalism. Yeah, yeah, and I and I I think it's 
the most charitable way I could read it is is read it as a way of a roundabout way of saying that it is not a useful perspective on the subject that is attempting to address. So it's really yeah. not very charitable at all. But like that's if I really stretch it, that's the only way I can see it making sense. Um, I can I can see the kind of like maybe rhetorical utility in the kind of exploitation thing and just like because it, it, as a colloquial understanding that users are kind of being fucked over in some vague kind of way by Facebook. But like the particulars just don't really hold up. Yeah, it, it yeah. really doesn't function as a theory of political economy in any kind of like sense that is subject to examination. Uh, so, yeah, it may be rhetorically useful, but I mean, it's of dubious. The, 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 the truth of it is highly dubious, even if it's rhetorically valuable. <laughs> yeah. Or even yeah. just like how people people even people who are not terribly plugged into tech stuff do have a kind of innate understanding of, of some sort of connection between they do stuff on Google and Facebook and then Google and Facebook make money somehow. And there's like a kind of vague, like underpants gnomes kind of like question mark space in the middle that seems to connect them. I think a lot of folks have that kind of... Yeah, and this tries to fill it in, but... Uh, it's very it's it's not not very successful i i just think yeah like uh you're right like it's it is a theory that is addressing a obvious question which is hey i get my stuff from google for free why are they so incredibly rich mm -hmm. yeah yeah this is there's got to be a connection there somehow you know uh, like i'm not getting rich by using this why are they getting rich by providing it uh, question mark? Uh, obvious question could use an answer, uh, but this is just not a good one. Um, the answer given here is just wrong, but like, yeah. Uh, see, see our episode on platform capitalism for that one. Yeah, um, we get into that uh, in some detail. Um, so then uh, another one is problematic relations between users. Uh, so alienation and weak ties. Uh, so, you know, obviously this is kind of like... Twitter is toxic. It's a cesspool. Like I, we, we should like, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, or, or actually I think this, this one to some degree is like the kind of like, Oh, people just don't have like meaningful relationships with each other anymore. They don't have local relationships. They're atomized and they just exist with one another on this, on, on Twitter, uh, in a, in a very anonymous way, a very like Durkheim kind of critique. Um, and, and, uh, you know, um, Swan brings up this like counterpoint of like maybe having many weak ties is a strength instead of a hindrance. Um, I think that this is true in the sense of marketing, but not true in the sense. So I think it's true in a one to many sense but it's not true in a many-to-many -many sense. Um, so the sense that he's looking for here as like a, a redeeming feature, I think doesn't exist. Um, yeah, like having, having many weak ties between some important node and an audience is probably useful, but like the way that, the way that human society is turning into a fucking gas at this point of just like molecules zipping past each other in the void is, is really not that good. Um, and like, I don't know. I, th I think if 
if this kind of alienation were useful to left organization, I think we would see evidence of that. I don't know, like just just looking at the evidence doesn't inspire a lot of hope <laughs> for um for this kind of thing, you know. Yeah, it's it's like he makes he makes the argument that like, oh, well, like by connecting to somebody who's got a ton of followers, uh, you are being introduced to like a large group of people. It's like, yeah, but if we're looking for conversation. This does not facilitate that, that all that does is empowers the person who is in the middle. Right. This is very basic social network theory. Um, so like, again, it's like you have these champions on Twitter who are, you know, super popular and, and, eh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think in, in network analysis, it's a, a gray cardinal is the term for like a kind of node that is unusually well connected. Um, and these, these kinds of networks work out pretty well for the gray cardinals. And yeah, I don't know. I also, like um, this kind of alienation has just ramped up and up and up, and we're not seeing a corresponding increase in like you know the strength of social movements or, or anything like that. You know, um, it actually seems to be inversely correlated uh, that like we're just getting more and more atomized, and left stuff is just getting weaker and weaker. Yeah, and I I, I would also say that like. Like if you look at this from a social network analysis perspective, like this is literally a structural hierarchy. Like it's, it's like like if you just think about it, the person who's highly highly connected to many different networks uh, and is like a burning star of interest, like just by the number of their connections and the sort of tree graph that you could draw off of that, they're actually in a structural hierarchy. They're in a privileged position in a structural hierarchy. Well, I. Exactly. I think it's it's not an accident at all that the like computer science people chose the term gray cardinal to describe those nodes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like it's like a cardinal Richelieu kind of like, you know, it's kind like I think I think that might in fact be the exact thing they were drawing on. Um, yeah, like as in the notion of like a some somebody in history that's like that, that is extremely well connected, but in shadowy kind of ways, you know, Um um, anyway, yes, but that's that's exactly what they were going for. Is like this is a super privileged position to be that node. Yeah, so uh, can't really get on board with that. Uh, the final critique is uh, subjectivity, behavioral, and mental norms. So this is this is really like the critique of like the hustle online, like the the marketing marketization of yourself. Yeah, yeah, the startup of you, as as Thomas Friedman once called it. Um, like just yeah, turning yourself and your entire identity into a commodity and hustling and you know just like debasing yourself <laughs> into hey, nothing but a function of the algorithm. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it says here it could be a site of resistance. Yeah, that like I, I don't know. So th there's the thing here, like um, yeah, there's there's the hustle sort of stuff, right? The um, the kind of constant debasement, and then there's the like just I think more imminent problem that like Twitter is like microdosing a personality disorder, um, which yeah, which is like the critique, right? That that's that that's the yeah, it's like like it's I think he gets to the he gets to that point where it's like 
for reasons of profitability and engagement, it is like beneficial for these platforms to design it in such a way that it is going to like cause mental harm to you. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's like the mate, the core of like the fourth critique there. The, the potential upside, though, would be that these online spaces could be the site of emergence for, you know, new subjectivities and that could contest uh, contest power or could, could contest the way things are done. Like if we had a different social network that was not one of these capitalist ones, then it could be positive in that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's it's one of those things that like. Uh, I, I, I agree. Those that's a it's a potentiality, right? Like, and I, I think yeah. I mean, online stuff is constantly breeding new subjectivities and stuff like that. But is is it just going from microdosing a personality disorder to regular dosing it? You know, <laughs> is the new subjectivity? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's it's a little hard to say because we have so we have um, so few examples of anything different. Yeah. This this stuff here actually reminds me a lot of um, the stuff they've been talking about on Mortal Science, uh, like Esri and, and Derek, right? That, like, one of the absolute core fuck-ups and total mistakes in Marxist theory was the, the theory that, like, increasing industrialization would increase the, like, skills and, like, awareness and, like, capacities of the proletariat. But what it has done is absolutely dissolved us into a gas of just fucking particles, and I see the same thing here, right? That it, it it had a potentiality maybe to make us better or whatever. You know, there's the the upside, but then if the upside doesn't actually pan out, was the upside there? Sure, right. Yeah, like uh, it's like oh, the the theory of like the industrial proletariat getting together in factories, you know, uh, sort of like gaining an understanding of each other as a collective subject, and you know, going out and. And, and taking power as uh, the theory that Marx had, the theory of change that Marx had, um, which certainly had a degree of validity in, in particular circumstances, which, you know, are ones that Marx was looking at, but uh, as a, kind of like as a prophecy of like this is how change will come and it's coming um it has obviously uh like in the revolutionary sense that marx meant it it is is clearly failed um so yeah yeah and then that that that, that tracks out as well for like communication theories of social networking because like when i was in communication um in the early aughts, um, there was still a lot of this kind of like optimism, uh, that was going around and like a lot of theories about, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's democratic, it's collective. It's, it's, uh, it's outside of traditional media structures. Um, like all of this kind of stuff. And like, again, like those theories are not necessarily invalid, but, uh, there's a sort of, sort of path dependency we've arrived at at this point where, They've become uh, excluded from any widespread significance.
Well, that's it for this episode. Join us again next time when we will conclude our discussion of anarchist cybernetics. In the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook, we're on all the podcast apps, so like, rate, and subscribe. You can go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month to help keep the lights on and to get access to our community Discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, Swampside Chats, and Varnvlog. They are excellent shows and excellent folks. Thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed the show.